1: Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with the terrifying new face of Russian brutality in Ukraine. The brutal but faltering Russian offensive has a new commander. This man, Army General Alexander Dvornikov, a veteran of Russia's atrocities in Chechnya, also known as the Butcher of Syria, for overseeing Russia's air campaign there, targeting Syrian civilians. Indiscriminate bombardment that flattened entire cities which earned him one of Russia's highest military awards from Vladimir Putin. Dvornikov is already overseeing Russian troops in southern and eastern Ukraine. And today, Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby spelled out the general's track record of brutality. He and other senior Russian leaders have shown in the past, and you mentioned Syria
2: as one example, have shown clearly in the past their disregard for avoiding civilian harm, um, their utter disregard in many ways um, for the laws of war, laws of armed conflict, um, and the brutality with which they conduct and prosecute their operations. We're probably uh, turning uh, another
1: page in the same book um, of, of Russian uh, brutality. And just tonight, Kirby said the United States is monitoring a report from the Ukrainian National Guard of a possible chemical weapons deployment in the besieged port city of Mariupol. The U.K.'s foreign secretary said their government is also looking into the report, noting that any use of chemical weapons would be a callous escalation of the conflict. This comes as Mariupol's mayor told the Associated Press that more than 10,000 civilians have been killed in Mariupol, adding that the death toll could surpass a staggering 20,000. Meanwhile, new satellite images show an eight-mile-long Russian military convoy moving toward the Donbass region and the city of Kharkiv. The regional leader there said there were 66 new strikes on the city and surrounding areas in 24 hours, killing at least 11 people, including a child. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed South Korea's parliament, warning that the Russians are deploying tens of thousands of troops for a renewed assault in the east. And in an interview with 60 Minutes, Zelensky renewed his call for additional military support and a no-fly zone over his country.
3: I remember, all of us remember, books about the Second World War and about the devil in uniform, Adolf Hitler. Are those countries who did not participate in the war responsible? The countries who let German forces march throughout Europe? Does the world carry responsibility for the genocide? Yes. Yes, it does. When you have the ability to close the sky. Yes, it's scary that a world war could start. It's scary, I understand that. And I cannot put pressure on these people because everyone is afraid of war.
1: With me now is former U.S. Ambassador to Russia, Michael McFaul, an MSNBC international affairs analyst, and Clint Watts, former consultant to the FBI counterterrorism division and an MSNBC national security analyst. And Clint, I do want to start with you. The devil in uniform. It appears there is a new devil in uniform, Vladimir Putin. I mean, these reports of chemical weapons attacks and what appears to be an attempt to almost sort of draw a half moon around Ukraine and push their territory, Russian territory, in almost to make Ukraine smaller and to create the sort of buffer, because if you just look at the places where they're attacking, and there it is, we're going to put that up on screen, where they're attacking, you know, it isn't in the West in Lviv, it's, it's along their border. And of course, in the South, where they've already uh, got Crimea, it's almost as if they want to essentially shrink the size of Ukraine and do it by shedding as much blood as possible. What do you make of this, um, this convoy and this focus on the East by the Russians?
4: Joy, the initial plan was to try and win everywhere. And instead, now they're just trying to win somewhere. And that somewhere is the Donbass. Ironically, this is where Vladimir Putin said that he initially was going in. This was his justification for seizing uh, uh, this part of Ukraine in the east. But at the same point, he's done a couple other things, too. That push in the south out of Crimea essentially created a land bridge over to Mariupol. That's the city which is essentially uh, under Russian control for the most part. There's a few pockets of resistance. It's unlikely that the remaining Ukrainian military that are there will be able to endure. And there's just civilian devastation. What you're seeing Vladimir people, Putin do at this point is just take all of his forces and mass it in the east and use total war. Total war in the sense that surrounding cities, bombing cities, leveling them. And I, as we hear there, are, you know, rumors of chemical weapons. I I would not be surprised at all if, if not now, in the coming weeks, you saw chemical weapons used to clear population centers that the Russian military just cannot take. So what you're seeing Putin essentially do is go for the east by creating those concentric circles. If he can unite those concentric rings, he will seal off pockets of the Ukrainian resistance. He'll be able to smother them over the time, uh, both in terms of just holding out all humanitarian aid, but also in terms of pounding indirect fires and, and total warfare.
1: You know, and and Ambassador McFall, what do you make of the idea of they, of introducing this man, this um, this butcher of Syria, General Alexander Dvornikov, because that that does feel like it's an indication that they really essentially want to go Aleppo um, on Ukraine.
5: Well, I'd say two things. One, he's being appointed because the other generals lost the war for the Battle of Kiev. Let's remember that. They wanted to take Kiev. They failed. That's a major victory for the Ukrainian forces, a major uh, setback for Russia. I think it's one of their biggest losses in in a long time. Uh, But yes, uh, they've already gone Aleppo, I would say, Joy. Uh, You know, I think when we find out, if we ever do, depending on what happens in Mariupol, Uh, We will be completely shocked by how many people have been been killed. I don't even like to use the word war to describe what's going on in Mariupol because they're just killing people. They're just literally killing everybody and destroying everything. That's exactly what they did in Aleppo. That's what, what they also did in Grozny, Chechnya, back in that war in 1999, 2000. It's horrific, but I also tragically agree with Clint, I think this city one day will fall. And the strategy now is very clear. Connect the red on your map in the the south uh, to the red on your map in the east, and then try to sue for peace with Ukraine divided.
1: And, you know, and let me play for a moment uh, President Zelensky, who did a remarkable interview on 60 Minutes this weekend, calling for more military aid.
3: All depends on how fast we will be helped by the United States. To be honest, whether we will be able to survive depends on this. I have 100 percent confidence in our people and in our armed forces, but unfortunately I don't have the confidence that we will be receiving everything we need.
1: I mean, Michael, uh, no, actually let me give this to Clint for, first. Um, you know, the other thing that he said was that Ukrainians are fighting for the right to a modern world. They're fighting for the basic right of freedom, the freedom from Russia deciding your borders or deciding, you know, who gets to join the EU or NATO. Um, That seems so fundamental. He is sort of fighting for the free world, not even sort of. Ukrainians are bleeding and dying for the free world. And I think for a lot of people, um, Clint, it's hard to understand why the world wouldn't just give them whatever it is they're asking for. There's this convoy, uh, again, you know, trained on them, but they can't do much about it if they don't have air power. At this point, is there a rational explanation? This sort of fear of World War III is real, but is there a rational explanation for not just finding a way to give them what they want and what they need?
4: Yeah, Joy, we're at an interesting inflection point because, uh, you know, in press conferences today, you have the U.S. military saying, we'll basically send them all sorts of weapons up to a, a certain extent and that line keeps marching forward and we seem to be much more open about what weapons we're providing we're talking about switchblade drones javelins this is some of our best military hardware for a dismounted unit that's essentially a defensive sort of posture uh to some degree they they can only go so far and i think what president zelensky was saying is the only way to take on large armor formations and wide open terrain, which is the Ukrainian East, is to have some sort of offensive capability. And that's very different from what happened in Kiev. In Kiev, a dismounted force in an urban environment that they know with interior lines and resupply can hold off a large formation like they did. But it's very different going out into these open uh, territories. Similarly, you have Boris Johnson appearing in Kiev. Uh, I mean, this is outright support. Uh, by mm-hmm. a European country, again, I think the right thing to do. But it's also somewhat strange because we make these moves. The US makes some moves. The UK makes these gestures. And we say, we'll do everything except for give you exactly what you need to win. We want you to win, but we're afraid to cross sli- this line. And, and the throwback on this is always if the US does anything or the NATO does anything to really back Ukraine, it will trigger a nuclear war. And I just don't know that that assumption is correct anymore. I think there is some room to budge around there. And things like dealing with air power. I mean, President Zelensky needs that form of air power. Much of this could be ended very quickly. And I think we need to test some of those constraints because Vladimir Putin is absolutely stretched at this point. I'm not sure he can continue this battle on much longer if he doesn't do it in the next two to four weeks out in the east.
1: And, you know, Ambassador McFall, you know, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman was um, doing interviews this weekend. And he made, I thought, a really good point. Vladimir Putin loves his life. He's enjoying being a neo-Tsar, living off of the backs of his people, living very well, living very rich. You know, in his mind, the idea that he would trigger what would be mutual assured destruction— He doesn't think seems rational because he said this man is rational. He's decided that he can get away with almost anything. He got away with it in Syria. He got away with it in Chechnya. He got away with taking Crimea. He got away with occupying the Donbass, which he's already in. He keeps getting told by the world, we're so afraid that you'll do the craziest possible thing that you go ahead and do the next craziest thing. You kill as many people as you want because there's only so far we're going to go to stop you. The Ukrainians have already shown... They've got all the courage to stop him if you let him. To you, when you look at this, isn't it the case that he actually has to be militarily defeated at this point? I mean, he has now arrested Vladimir Karamurza, a friend of this show. We've had him on. He went back to Russia. He's now arresting, again, opposition politicians who he knows have access to American TV, who he knows are known in this country. He has no limits. He's, He's arrested an American WNBA player. He doesn't care. Because he really genuinely believes he can get away with anything. Isn't the world telling him, yes, you can?
5: Well, it's a mixed message, because on the one hand, we are arming the Ukrainians in a way that we haven't done historically ever. And it's impressive. And at the same time, I think we do fear escalation in an irrational way. Uh, You know, rational is a weird word, right? It's not rational to kill children at a, uh, you know, at a train station. It's not rational to to bomb innocent people in Mariupol. But let's leave that word aside. I'm the one that just brought it up. Putin, you're absolutely right. He uh, will do things within limits. They've made very clear, by the way, uh, since he first made those comments about nuclear weapons, that they're only going to use them if Russia is threatened uh, itself, existential threat. Well, nobody's doing that. So I think that's off the table. The second thing people worry about is them attacking NATO. But if you're having so much trouble in your war with Ukraine right now, you think (laughs) Putin is going to attack the largest, most powerful alliance in the world anchored by the most powerful military in the world? I don't think so. And so I think, yes, I support the president when he says no-fly zone. That's where I disagree with President Zelensky. That's a declaration of war. But everything short of that, we've got to give them those weapons, and we've got to do it in a way that will matter in the fight in the coming weeks. It can't be slow. So everything below that, I think we need to be delivering now.
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't think anyone watching this show disagrees with you because Putin has shown that, you know, you want to call somebody the devil in uniform. I think he has earned that title alongside the person to whom um, Volodymyr Zelensky was initially referring. Uh, Ambassador Michael McFaul, Clint Watts, thank you both very much. Up next. On the readout, Congresswoman Liz Cheney says the January 6th committee has enough evidence to refer Donald Trump for criminal charges. Meanwhile, another key figure in the insurrection is cooperating with the feds. Plus, a major city is reimposing an indoor mask mandate. Should we be concerned about the rise of COVID cases across the country? Dr. Anthony Fauci joins me. And you might have read about the Texas woman arbitrarily charged with murder over an abortion. Those charges have now been dismissed. But don't be fooled. This is the future Republicans are writing into law. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day,
6: Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future.
1: The January 6th committee has enough evidence for a criminal referral of Donald Trump, according to Vice Chair Liz Cheney.
6: We have not made a decision about referrals uh, on the committee. I think that it is absolutely the case. It's absolutely clear that um, what President Trump uh, was doing, uh, what, what a number of people around him were doing, that they knew it was unlawful, they did it anyway. There's not really a dispute on the committee.
1: Cheney pushed back on reporting that indicates that the committee is split over sending the referral to the Justice Department over concerns it could backfire by politically tainting any move that Attorney General Merrick Garland makes in the DOJ's investigation. Cheney isn't the only one making the case that Trump likely committed crimes. Last month, a federal judge ruling on a case involving Trump's lawyer and insurrection memo author, John Eastman, said that Trump probably committed a felony when he tried to stop Congress from certifying the electoral vote for Joe Biden. Judge David Carter wrote, quote, based on the evidence, the court finds it more likely than not that Trump corruptly attempted to obstruct the joint session of Congress on January 6th 2021 unquote. So while the January 6th committee is still contemplating whether to send a criminal referral to the Justice Department, one thing is very clear. It is getting harder and harder to ignore all the elements of this conspiracy and how high it might reach. And while Merrick Garland has been tight lipped about the DOJ's investigation, leading to growing criticism that he's not doing enough, there are new signs that the investigation is expanding. Last week, Ali Alexander, the self-described lead organizer of the Stop the Steal rally on January 6th, said he is taking a cooperative posture with the DOJ investigation after receiving a grand jury subpoena. The New York Times reports that in an indication that the inquiry could could reach into the Trump administration and its allies in Congress, the subpoena also seeks information about members of the executive and legislative branches who are involved in the events or who may have helped obstruct the investigation of the 2020 election. With me now, Joyce Vance, professor at the University of Alabama School of Law and a former U.S. attorney and friend of the show. And so, Joyce, this is—to me, when I saw this, I was like, this is actually interesting. I have been, you know, touting Aldi Alexander as somebody interesting since he kind of vanished after January 6th and seemed to almost go into hiding. Then he popped back up in the Tuckums documentary that tried to make it sound like it was an FBI, like, you know, fake, you know, insurrection to try to make Donald Trump's people look bad. But let me let people listen to Ali Alexander just to remind folks who he is. Here he is.
7: The person who came up with the January 6th idea with Congressman Gosar, Congressman Mo Brooks and then Congressman Andy Biggs. We four schemed up of putting maximum pressure on Congress while they were voting so that who we couldn't lobby, we could change the hearts and the minds of Republicans who were in that body Hearing our loud roar from outside.
1: Our loud roar from the outside. Whoever we couldn't lobby, we could change the hearts and minds of Republicans. That sounds like a confession. And it also sounds like a snitch. Mo Brooks, Andy Biggs, Congressman Gosar,
8: your thoughts. You know, it's awfully interesting because he seems to be saying, if there are people that we can't convince with logic, we will convince them with violence. And I agree to you, that sounds awfully close uh, to a statement about a criminal conspiracy in the works. So look, if I'm a prosecutor and I have access to Ali Alexander and what he says is a cooperative posture— First off, I'm a little bit uh, cynical as I approach him. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that everything that he says is corroborated. I'm interested in listening to his story and his narrative. What I really want to know is, are there text messages or other documents that back up anything he has to say, for instance, about the congressman? And I'm also very interested in what insight he might have between the different factions. That showed up on January sixth. These MAGA groups, these uh, you know white supremacist groups, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, because there was obviously a lot of friction between them and the organizers of the different events. And it's possible that Alexander may have a narrative that will be very helpful to prosecutors in putting together a case that works ever higher up and closer towards Trump's Oval Office.
1: And so, just talk to us about the strategy here. You're absolutely right. So you have Donald Trump Jr. Days after the election, before any election uh, results were even certified, texting um, to the chief of staff, Mark Meadows, right after election. It's very simple. We have multiple paths. We control them all. We either have a vote we control and we win, or it gets kicked to Congress. When? January 6th. You have that. Put put a pin in that. You have Ali Alexander saying, I came up with this plan that we were going to hear—they the they would hear the roar of us if they wouldn't be convinced on January 6th to flip the election. Then you have the actual things that happen. You have the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers show up. Both of the leaders of those groups are now in trouble. You have uh, the Proud Boys leader, um, Chris Donahoe, having uh, pleaded guilty. And you have the Oath Keepers leader, Joshua James. These guys are cooperating with the DOJ. So they're there. And then you have the sort of academic like, sort of overhang of, here's how you do this. You need to find a way to get them—to get Congress to not actually certify the election. John Eastman outlined in a scenario in which Vice President Mike Pence could deny certifying Biden's election, Cruz crafted a complimentary plan—that's Ted Cruz of Texas—after the complimentary plan, Eastman asked in an inquiry by a lawyer for the January 6th committee whether he had any communication with Senator Ted Cruz regarding efforts to change the outcome of the 2020 election, declined to answer, invoked the fifth. I'm just going to let you talk while I put up this sort of chart that our wonderful producer for this segment put together. There are so many people, Joyce, who all seem to have the same plan, somehow delay the certification on January 6th, somehow convince members of Congress to not certify, somehow convince the vice president to overturn the election. Can it be a coincidence that all these people had the same idea, some of whom acted violently?
8: I had a wonderful mentor who used to say there's no such thing as coincidence in law enforcement. And by and large, that tends to be true. But Joy, you've done a great job of laying out the problem that DOJ faces. And I'm going to be a little bit wonky here for a second we and love explain that. that there's a concept in the law um, a- about conspiracies where sometimes you just have one big conspiracy. Everybody's part of it. They all entered into the same agreement. They're all working together. On other occasions, you can have multiple conspiracies, each with its own set of players. They can be overlapping, but they can have different objectives. A- and without um, boring people and causing them to turn off their TVs, I'll just say that there are legal implications for prosecutors in getting that right. You can have cases get reversed on appeal if you're not mm-hmm. careful about identifying conspiracies And charging them properly. And so that's an issue I think DOJ faces here. You do such a great job of laying out all of the players. And there's also the folks in the Willard War Room and this question Mm. of how much command and control if any, the former president had. So I I have, and I think you and I have discussed before, I'm very empathetic to the situation DOJ's prosecutors are in. If they're going to charge, they've got to get it right. Not just complicated legal issues, but this factual overlay, which, you know, as we look at this evidence, I think we all have a little bit of confirmation bias because we don't like what Donald Trump did. We saw in real time that he tried to commit an insurrection against Americans. When a jury hears this evidence, the judge will instruct them that they have to start with a presumption of innocence, and juries take that very seriously, and the government will have to present specific evidence on specific charges and get it right. But increasingly, between the January 6th committee's work and this increasing pile of cooperators DOJ is developing, it looks like progress is being made.
1: And, and you know, and, and you're right because I have had no, I've had almost no empathy for the DOJ. But you've been very great about coming on and being like, hold on a second, hold your horses, because we saw in Michigan that what looked like an airtight conspiracy, when it gets in the hands of a jury, anything from nullification to just a case that wasn't put together, right? You, you anything could have happened in that range. They didn't get a conviction there. There's a couple people who may be retried, and you saw the, um, the the back down in New York that um, people were very upset about by Alvin Bragg. D.A. Al- Alvin Bragg, who was sort of hold your horses. But he then did say this weekend, no, they're still investigating. Is that what you're talking about, that if you're going to aim for the king, you better be accurate? Because the, the risk is you jump out there, you do some sort of a prosecution, and you lose.
8: I think that's right. You know, prosecutors have a very serious obligation to evaluate their evidence before they indict. And, and this is the America we want to live in. And this Texas case, this prosecution that I know you'll talk about later of the, the attempted prosecution of the woman for an abortion when Texas law didn't make that a charge that could be brought, that's reprehensible. And prosecutors shouldn't engage in that sort of conduct, subjecting people to arrest because they have the power to do that, even when their case isn't any good. We don't want to be that America. We want to be an America where a former president is held accountable properly for his acts. And that means we are living through tough times and difficult times. There are some fair and legitimate questions about Merrick Garland. But increasingly, we see a lot of work going on behind the surface. And I think, unfortunately, for those of us living through it, we have to wait a little bit longer. But I think we should have confidence that the system is doing its job.
1: I have to say, as much uh, doubt as I've had about Merrick Garland, I do have confidence in the prosecutors at the DOJ. uh, And one of the many reasons is because I know you. And if they're anything like you, my friend Joyce Vance, I know that they are great and they are diligent and they're doing their job. So God bless them. And let's just see what happens. And we're hoping we can get justice for this country. Joyce Vance, thank you. Still ahead. Philadelphia reinstates indoor mask mandates as some parts of the U.S. report an uptick in new COVID cases. Dr. Fauci joins me next.
0: National Outlet Shopping Day is back. Join us June 8th and 9th at Simon Premium Outlets nationwide. Score thousands of can't-miss deals from brands you love all weekend long. They've got up to 65% off every day. And the National Outlet Shopping Day deals are even better. Visit premiumoutlets.com slash N-O-S-D to find a premium outlet near you. That's premiumoutlets.com slash N-O-S-D.
6: The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
1: COVID cases are ticking up across the country, fueled by a highly transmissible Omicron subvariant. High profile names in the Biden administration and Congress are no exception. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib is the latest House member to contract COVID-19. Meanwhile, 80, 80 people have now tested positive after having attended the annual gridiron dinner in Washington on April 2nd. That includes New York Mayor Eric Adams, Attorney General Merrick Garland, and Senator Susan Collins. More than two years into the pandemic, with three types of vaccines and a lot of COVID fatigue, many Americans are stepping back into public life with more confidence. And yet, questions remain over how to navigate the risks. For Philadelphia, those risks mean the mask mandate is back. It is the first major U.S. city to reimpose a mask mandate for indoor public spaces amid this latest surge. Joining me now is Dr. Anthony Fauci, Director of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and Chief Medical Advisor to President Biden. Dr. Fauci, it is great to see you again. Um, But usually seeing you again sometimes means I have to discuss bad news with you. Uh, And and this one is tough because— This 80 people testing positive at one event has scared a lot of those of us who are here in the the nation's capital. You know, we've got things coming up like the White House Correspondents Dinner. Should I be afraid? (laughs) Should we be afraid?
2: Well, if you are vaccinated, uh, Joy, and boosted, um, then you are in a very low risk category of getting seriously ill if you get infected you're protected predominantly against infected, but not nearly as well as we'd like, because the vaccines do much better in protecting against severe disease than it does against infection. So the the organizers of these groups do whatever they can to try and mitigate the risk, requiring people to show proof of vaccination and even requiring a test, a negative antigen test within 24 hours of whatever event we're talking about. So the risk is still very low, but it's not zero. And that's if you wanna get back to some form of normality, you look at the CDC guidelines about giving some broad general framework upon which you can make your choice, but the choice is up to the individual about the level of risk that they're willing to take. I mean, if you are totally risk averse And you don't want to get infected at all, no matter what, for any of a number of reasons. You might have an underlying condition that would make you more likely to get a severe outcome. You might have someone in your home who is a compromised person so that you might bring it home, even if you don't have a symptom. You put all of that into the equation of whether you might want to go to a big dinner or not. And that's the individual choice. That's going to be part of living with a level of infection in the community that's not stressing the hospital system, that's not killing a lot of people, that's not sending a lot of people to the hospital, but still, people are getting infected. And that's really the name of the game and what it's gonna be like, and you just follow it very carefully.
1: Yeah, you know, there's it feels like there's sort of mixed messages, right? For those of us who are vaccinated and boosted, uh, right? It it feels like the the sort of overall messages you can ha- go back to your life, you can go out to dinner, you can do things. But then you hear about people who are mainly vaccinated getting sick, right? And I even know of somebody that I know who who passed recently who was vaccinated and boosted. I don't know what underlying conditions they had. But then on the other hand, you have the, you know, the federal government imminently taking away the mask mandates, the mask mandates. They're trying to decide the Biden administration is trying to decide whether they should extend the mask mandates, requiring masks on airplanes, trains and transit hubs. But Philadelphia is putting the mask mandate back on. That feels like a mixed, mixed message. And I think I'd be a- afraid to fly without wearing a mask. Do you think it's wise to even talk about getting rid of the mask mandates on transit?
2: Well, certainly that is being very actively discussed. And I think what we're dealing with, or I know what we're dealing with, Joy, is that we're dealing with a bit of a moving target. No doubt, when you pull back the way the country has on the requirements for masks, according to the new CDC metrics, we see in other countries like the UK, when you do that in the context of BA2, which is more transmissible than BA1, and you have waning immunity, you have the risk of their seeing an uptick in cases, exactly what they're seeing in the UK and in certain of the European countries. So we're looking at what we're seeing right now. I don't think there's any question you are gonna see an uptick. About half the half of the states in the country are already seeing an increase. It isn't nearly as high to trigger a change in color of the so-called color code But it's going up. So we really need to see what's going to happen in the next few weeks before you make a decision about pulling back on a mandate for travel like you asked. It may be it'll be kept or it may be that it'll go up and then things will come down and they'll pull back. I can't tell you what the answer to that is right now.
1: Yeah. And very quickly, before we let you go, if you are over 50 right now, uh, would you get that fourth shot? I mean, if, if should those over 50 go ahead and get that fourth shot or should they or should all of us wait?
2: I recommend you go and get the shot if you are over 50.
1: All right. Then you've heard it from the man himself. a clear recommendation. Very clear. (laughs) We we love clarity. Dr. Anthony Fauci, thank you very much. Really appreciate you. Cheers. And up next, a Texas woman is arrested for murder after what authorities say was a self-induced abortion. Those charges have now been dropped. But it is a chilling preview of the future if Roe versus Wade is overturned by the Supreme Court. Stay right there.
2: I think I'm the most honest human being, perhaps, that God ever created, perhaps.
1: I'm so sorry for making you listen to that guy today. But honestly, he is the leader of the Republican Party, the one to whom every Republican from Moscow, Mitch, on down, bends the knee. And for once, he is right. He does say what he means. Take this comment from 2016 when he was running for president.
2: Do you believe in punishment for abortion, yes or no, as a principle? Uh, The answer is that there has to be some form of punishment. For the woman? Yeah, there has to be some form. Mm
1: -hmm. At the time, anti-abortion activists condemned his statement and said they in no way wanted to punish women. Fast forward to the present. A Texas woman, Lizelle Herrera, was charged with murder and held on a $500,000 bond due to what the Starr County Sheriff's Office described as an intentionally and knowingly causing the death of an individual by self-induced abortion. Now, we don't know the details of the case, and it's still unclear if it was Herrera's abortion or if she aided one. But if she was arrested for actually having the abortion, that is unprecedented. Texas does have extremely draconian laws that are hindering patients from abortion care throughout the state and putting even bounties on women. But the laws haven't gone as far yet as legally punishing a patient to obtain an abortion, which is why the district attorney dismissed the case today. And the anti-abortion Texas Right to Life group says that they actually agree with that decision. You've got to presume due to the terrible PR. But it does raise the question. After Roe v. Wade is overturned by the right-wing Supreme Court majority, which seems likely, will women be punished for abortions? Before Roe v. Wade, seeking an abortion was a crime in six states, though women were very rarely imprisoned. But they were punished in many other ways. As Slate points out, being captured, examined, interrogated, occasionally jailed, and forced to testify in court punished women for seeking abortions, even if they were never prosecuted or convicted of a crime. In today's environment, it is hard to see a way to make abortion illegal while not holding women responsible. If Roe v. Wade is overturned, 26 states are already certain or likely to outright ban abortion, according to the Gutmarker Institute. And as Paul Waldman writes in The Washington Post today, once it's overturned, quote, red states will start competing with one another to see who can pass the most draconian abortion ban. And if you think that doesn't involve throwing women who dare to exercise control of their own bodies in jail, you haven't been paying enough attention. That's going to be just the start. So what should Democrats do about it? That is up next. The conservative-dominated Supreme Court is inching closer and closer to telling American women, your body belongs to the state the moment you get pregnant, however that happens, even if it's by rape or incest. And so you cannot decide what to do with your body the instant that that happens. This while Republican state houses across this country are being flooded with restrictive abortion bills, in gleeful anticipation by the right of the imminent end of Roe v. Wade. Despite the fact that according to Pew Research, 59% of Americans say abortion should be legal in all or most cases, while 39% say it should be illegal in all or most cases. A majority of adults across racial and ethnic lines that racial and ethnic groups express support for legal abortion. Two thirds of Asian and black adults say abortion should be legal in all or most cases, as do 58 percent of Hispanic adults and 57 percent of white adults. But congressional Republicans are not waiting around for the court to put an end to choice in America. The National Review got a hold of the Republican Study Committee's messaging memo ahead of the Supreme Court's decision, which argues that Republicans, yes, you know, the ones who want guns in every school, but not books or funding or lunch for kids who can't afford it to pay, who can't afford to pay, that they are the pro-life, pro-family party. The memo argues that it's Democrats who are out of step with Americans because they support, quote, abortion on demand through all nine months paid for by taxpayers, a compound lie but a politically lethal one. With me now is Maria Teresa Kumar, president and CEO of Voto Latino and Democratic pollster Cornel Belcher. You know, um, where to begin? (laughs) MDK, what seems to be happening right now um, with this prosecution, this attempted prosecution of this woman in Texas that was then withdrawn, it seems like the hand was shown because you logically cannot say that abortion should be illegal, but that women getting abortions are not committing a crime. The logical, you know, the logical outcome of that logic or the outcome of that logic is that women are guilty of criminal offenses. I can't see how it doesn't end up with women being prosecuted, can you?
9: Neither do I, and I think that's one of the reasons why the the judge actually had to throw it out of court, right? But this was after it was physically presented. And the other question one, one has to ask themselves is, were any HIPAA violations actually done? You know, the this is the idea behind HIPAA is you have a privacy with your with whatever healthcare you have. Your doctor cannot tell your employer, cannot tell your neighbor by law. So, what HIPAA violation is there? If I were her, I'd identify. How do we actually sue this? Because it was a violation of her privacy at a very bottom level that is upheld by the federal government. But taking a step back from that. It is a chilling effect for women everywhere and our loved ones when the government is trying to decide what is right for us at that moment. And we do not know or understand her circumstance, but she decided that this was this is where she was in the fact that, again, a medical procedure uh, that she went and sought extra help in the hospital all of a sudden landed her in jail. There's not a woman in America and, you know, a partner or a family member that should not be outraged by the government stepping
1: so personally
9: into our space.
1: You know, and, Cornell, it seems to me that Democrats are missing—you a you know, hopefully they're not going to miss this huge opportunity. I mean, here's the thing. This is a dog that caught the car problem, <laughs> that it was always a great— electoral strategy to say we're going to end the scourge of abortion until you do it, because when you do it, now you start to see how that looks when you actually implement it. It means arresting women. It means putting bounties, as you just heard Maria Marietta Kumar say, disclosing that women got an abortion so that you can collect money on their head. It means a lot of cruelty to the woman. And I wonder if that message is getting through at least the way that Democrats are talking about this issue, or are they running away from the issue?
7: Well, it's certainly not getting through. And and quite frankly, uh, I, I would argue that it is not the main focus of, of the conversation. I mean, look at the the, 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 the latest NBC polling out, Joy. Uh, uh, abortion issues is not even a, it's not a top-tier issue. It's not even close to being a top-tier issue. It's an issue with you know, less than 5% of, of, of the electorate. So right now, it, it is not an issue that for that 59% of Americans who don't want it to go away, it is not, a, it is not an issue for them. It's not a top-tier issue. Look, in the end, uh, politics isn't rocket science joy. It is, it is fear and it is hope. And uh, we've seen uh, hope break through. But you know, in the history of this country, fear has worked a lot more than hope. Um, and I, I think the dynamic here, possibility for Democrats, is, is this is one where they ac- actually can drive fear in a way that helps them politically. Because the moment that that you see this the issue of abortion and a woman's choice rise up to a top two, you know, top three, four uh, issue consideration, I think Republicans are in trouble because at that point, they are not where the vast majority of voters are, and particularly the vast majority of suburban college-educated women that mm-hmm. they need in order to swing these uh, swings districts and these swing states their way. And the moment that this issue, the moment that, 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 that these college-educated white women think that their choice and their their daughter's choice is going to go away from them, I think it's a realignment. I think it's a change and shift in the dynamic. But we haven't seen it yet because, quite frankly, we're all talking about gas prices.
1: No, it's true. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Maria Teresa, I mean, here's the thing. The political incentives for Republicans are going to end the minute Roe v. Wade ends. The new political incentive will be to then prove to these rural white voters, which is who they're catering to, that we're going to pass the most egregious, the strictest laws. It's not going to be—you can't promise you're going to get rid of Roe because it'll be gone. It'll be no, our law is going to be stronger. No, my law is going to be stronger. I can see Texas and Florida competing with each other to pass the, the most locker up laws possible. And, and that seems to me to be a message that needs to get through. I think about West Texas, where Latino voters or Hispanic voters are basically being messaged. No, you're a Catholic. You should be with us because we're against abortion rather than saying, no, y'all are going to get arrested.
9: Right. Well, and this is the thing is that if you when you actually do polling in the Latino community, abortion is something that people believe is literally something between themselves and their God. And that's it but no one should be talking about it because it is something that is a personal decision and there should be no judgment. And this is where the Democrats over and over and over during every single midterm, and I think Cornell will will all agree with me, this is where they miss the point. In 2020 and 2018, we grew the electoral base of young black and brown and Asian and Native American folks. And that is where the progressive party, that's their opportunity. This year alone, we're expecting almost three and a half million youth to turn 18 years old since last election. You know who cares about abortion and access and agency over their body? Young people. Young women who all of a sudden are strapped with student loans who are yep. b- trying to struggle in this e- economy. And the Democratic Party can send them a very clear message that they are going to protect their body and their choice because at the end of the day, yes, it may be spiritual for some, but for some, maybe just plain economics. I can't yep. do this right now because I want to go to school or, or I want yep. to have a job. That is where they miss because every single time the midterm comes around and all we hear about is What are we going to do with suburban white voters? Not that we can't do both, but we have to extend that electoral base. And this is a missed opportunity because it's dead center on what they actually really care about young people. We talk we- about the price of milk, but you can't buy a price of milk if you are basically on, on maternity leave and you're maybe not even getting that receiving that benefit of maternity leave.
1: And not only that, if you are essentially on. the property, oh, no, if you are essentially state property, I think we're missing the point here. What they're saying is the minute you are pregnant, you are state property. Y'all need to think about that. You need to vote. Maria Teresa Kumar, Cornell Belcher. Thank you both. That is tonight's readout.